Thank you, Jen. Hey, my Bible. Good. Uh, Ephesians. How many of you have ever done a deep, deep dive into Ephesians? Isn't it an awesome, awesome book, right? Yes, we can clap. So today uh, we're going to just do a quick look at what Paul is trying to do in Ephesians 1 and what it says about us. When you study Paul's writing, Paul has a a structure that he follows in almost every single one of the books. In the first couple chapters, he he does this glorious flowery language uh, about who you are. And in Ephesus, he's really coming at them kind of hard on this identity piece because he wants them to switch and say, no more defining yourselves by all that stuff. That's why he says Jesus Christ and and Christ Jesus and Jesus Christ and Jesus and God and all of this like 14 times in 10 verses because he wants you to begin to see where you are actually rooted. Paul is trying to reshape the identity of the people in Ephesus. Ephesus is where the Ephesians were written, to the people of Ephesus. Paul is trying to reshape them so they can view themselves as differently. And so Paul's pattern, not only in Ephesians, but in Colossians and in Philippians, is it goes like this. Reminder, you are in Christ now. You are a Christian. You follow Jesus. Jesus is your primary identity. And then the second half of the book says, because Jesus is your primary identity, this is how you should be living. And then in every single one of Paul's books is this line, stop it. So stop living like you were over here. This is who you are. Live this way. And so it's a constant reminder. And I think it's something that we all should be reminded of uh, quite often. Because if you're like me, here, there you go. I forget all the time. And when we and, and our identity, we start defining ourselves by a whole bunch of different things. And we lose our primary core identity of who we are. And so we start defining ourselves by our jobs. We start defining ourselves by our lack of jobs. We start defining ourselves by the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. And if you're a fan of Fight Club, you know this line. You are not your job. You are not how much money you have in the bank. You are not the car you drive. You are not the contents of your wallet. And you are not your khakis. Have any of you seen the movie? Okay, I edited that strongly. (laughs) But the sentiment is there. We define ourselves by what we have and what we do. And because of that, who we are is constantly under attack because we start feeling the pressures to define ourselves by other things that are fleeting and gone, gone really quickly. Gone with the wind, if you like that movie. They're, they're gone so quickly. And so Paul wants us to remember our truest identity. And when we do, we will see three things about us. We will see that we're loved, we'll see that we're accepted, and we'll see that we are being sent. And those become, uh, in a way, our birthmarks, our identity marks. You're marked by being loved, you're marked by being accepted, and you're marked by being sent out to do something. So Paul, we're going we're gonna to look very deeply in what Paul is saying in Ephesians. And so we're going to go back and read it, and we're going to dive into some of the cultural nuances that Paul is actually addressing this. We can read this and go, ah, Cool. But when you see who Paul's audience is, when you see what Paul is trying to do with this, the whole text takes on a whole new shape. And we finally get, wow, this is rich. The first thing you should know is that the first 14 verses in in Ephesians 1 is one huge run-on sentence. We like to put periods there. 
But Paul just starts going comma, comma, whatever the Greek equivalent is. And it's just one long sentence describing you, describing us. So he says, Paul, apostle of Christ Jesus, to the will of God, to the holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you. Praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in every, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us, from the, chose us in him before creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us. Now we like to get hung up on that word predestined. And for those theology, theology nerds, Calvinist, it doesn't mean what you want it to mean. Uh, Calvin wasn't alive right here. And so the whole predestination thing that we tend to argue about in churches, not here. Okay? Good. Moving on. Uh, he predestined us to be, to be adopted to a sonship. Now we're going to get to this later. Sonship. Uh, back in those days when you adopted, you only adopted sons or because in that culture, that's just what it was called. So it's no offense to you ladies. That means adopted to your being a part of the family. So you're brought in. Paul was including that, but his culture would have said differently. Okay, so the first marker we need to look at here is that you are marked by love. The first thing about you that you need to see is that you are absolutely 100% loved. No matter what you do, no matter what you're doing, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're about to do because you're thinking about doing it after church, you are loved. Here's why this matters. In those days... Uh, there, there was a time period between the New Testament and the Old Testament that lasted about 400 years. Uh, they called it the 400 years of silence, even though God was actually working a lot of things around. Just no one wrote it down. During these 400 years, a guy by the name of Alexander the Great decided to take over most of the known world. And when he did, he was the Greek guy. When he did, he would do, do a practice called Hellenization. How many of you ever heard of Hellenization? Great, for those of you who are wondering what the Hellenization that is. <laughs> that was way too easy, I'm sorry. Hellenization was uh, uh, Alexander the Great's way of adopting everybody into the Greek culture. And so he would go and take over a town. And not only take over a town, he would build schools and gymnasiums and theaters and temples. And so if you, and he would make it be this beautiful, beautiful thing. And so if you were there and you weren't sure about this Greek guy, but you really liked that building, you'd go, wow, these Greeks, they got it going on. I like them. I want to be a part of them. I'm going to vote for Caesar the next time, or not Caesar, for Alexander the next time he comes in. And so this is, this is what he did. And so in Greek culture and Hellenization, the perfect was the most admired. And so they would have perfect buildings. They would have uh, perfect sculptures. And in that perfection piece, the human body was worshipped. You see this in their art. They, they glorify humanity. They glorify anything humans could do. And so their sculptures are of these exquisitely modeled human beings that have the perfect muscle tones and everything because they elevated perfection of the human body so high that that became the goal. The dark side of this all was that if you didn't match what was on the statue or what was around, you weren't considered perfect, and then you started to think that you didn't, you didn't fit in. This is where we got the idea of the Olympics. The Olympics started because of the, out of worship for the human physique. 
This person can run the fastest. Let's elevate them. They are the perfection of their craft. This is the best we can do. The Olympics started, and when they raced to elevate the human body, they would do everything without clothes because this, you looked at them and go, this is perfection in motion. This is the dark side of what we see about Hellenization because if no one met those standards, you were discarded. And there was this practice that took place back in those days, and we've talked about it before, uh, but in Ephesus especially, if you were to have a baby and you didn't like something about this baby that was born, either it was the wrong gender or it had a deformity or it didn't look right or you just didn't want it, there was a heartbreaking uh, practice called exposure. And it was legal. And it was sometimes encouraged. And they would take the babies, because they didn't meet this idea of perfection, they would take the babies and they would expose them. They would set them on this hill that was outside of Ephesus that everyone knew it was there. And they would place the babies there, usually in some kind of basket, and walk away. It was a cultural thing. This is because the baby didn't meet the perfection that was desired in the city. It was unlovable. It was unwanted. It's gone. This is the dark side of Hellenization. This is where Paul is writing. This is why it makes sense, or this is why it's important. Because Paul writes this flowery language about how we're loved, declared blameless. We're saints. And he's telling this to this group of people who were probably left for exposure on the side of the hill because this is what would happen. If you needed a slave, you would walk up to the hill and you could take this baby home with you. And this baby belonged to you as your possession, not as your child, but as a possession of yours. And so there was a cheaper way than buying slaves. It was a cheaper way than buying servants. You would just raise them. They weren't considered fully people. And so Paul is writing this chapter, this book, to a group of people who were sitting in a room, probably something a little smaller than this, families, and with the people there'd be a row of folks, and most likely there was somebody who was a slave sitting with their master who got their start on a side of the hill. Can you imagine what it would feel like if you were that person whose identity has always been I don't measure up to perfection. I was left to die. And then Paul writes this letter and it's being read and it says, you, the one who was left to die, blameless, pure, loved, brought into a family. Do you see how this would start to change their world? Paul is directly opposing this idea that there is a difference between those who are perfect and those who are not and that we are all brought together inside of this family and we belong here. There is no difference between how people look or act. There is no difference between because you are a slave or because you are not. You are 100% loved. You see how this might shape your identity What Paul is saying is that we have a God who goes up to the hill and picks us up and brings us in and goes, this one's mine. And I don't care what anyone else says about you. This one, you, you are mine. 
and I'm going to keep you, and I'm going to love you because you're perfect in my sight. I made you. This would transform those people in that church, and I hope it transforms you because the same is true with us. If you don't think we have this ideal of perfection, then open your eyes when you're at the grocery store. All around us, on billboards and magazines, there is this idea of everything we have to be. We have to look a certain way. We have to have the same kind of hair as whoever I'm out. We have to have a certain kind of physique. We have to have a job. We have to have a car. We have to have all of these things in order that we measure up. Am I the only one that feels that pressure? I hope not. I hope maybe, hope so. But this is the pressure we have and so we, start, we start to define ourselves by everything that's out there. We start to define ourselves as less worthy. We don't fit. Paul says to us here, Paul says to us in Colossians and other books, yes, you do. Because when you measure yourself by everything else, measure yourself by your job, measure yourself by your bottom line, by your bank account, by your khakis, measure yourself by all of these, you're missing the point. The point is that before all of that, your core identity, the first thing that is said about you is you are loved. And here's another, the the tidbit here. We like to define ourselves by our failures. We like to say, I'm I'm just a sinner. Woe is me. First two words that Paul says when he talks about the people in Ephesus, what are they? Can you look for me? Ephesians, what, what are they? Look in your Bibles. Roger, put that back up on the screen if you can. Ephesians 1, 1. Paul, to the the saints. How does Paul refer to you? Saint. So why are you referring to yourself as anything less than that? To the saints who are what? Faithful? In Christ Jesus. And then he says, grace and peace to you. How are you defined in God's, in God's eyes? You're a saint. Does the person next to you look like a saint? Probably. Careful how you answer that. <laughs> you are defined, first and foremost, as a saint who is loved by your heavenly Father. And that's where you begin. You are deeply, deeply loved. The next marker that we see in Ephesians is this. The second marker is that you're accepted. In the verse, he says, In love he predestined us for adoption as children through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Adoption in that culture might be a little bit different from adoption in our culture. In that culture, when you adopted somebody, they were only interested in adopting heirs. And in Roman law, in Ephesus law, the only people that could be heirs were considered sons. And so that's why Paul says sonship here. For instance, if you were rich and you didn't have a child, you didn't have a son to pass it on, pass on all your wealth and your status, you would go adopt a son. And that way that that person would then carry on your line even if they don't belong, even if they're not your, your true biological child. In Roman adoption, the process had to be public. The father would go and the father would initiate and choose who that he would adopt. The child had a choice. The child can either say yes or no to the adoption. Most likely they would say yes because usually the person is loaded and you need money. And so they would say yes. The child had an, uh, an option. 
then when you were adopted, if, if I was adopted into a brand new family, everything from my former life, everything that I had done, both good and bad, erased. All my debt, gone. My previous police record, gone. Your previous, it's like you have a whole new uh, set of identity. You have a new last name. You are given a new status. You're given a new father. You're given a new responsibility. And then here's the thing. In that culture, you're allowed to take someone who is biologically your child and publicly disown them. If you were adopted, you could never, ever, 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 ever be disowned. So you're accepted. Now, if you're adopted into this family and you're brought in, you're in for good. <laughs> He's stuck with you. This is, this is how adoption ruled. There are instances where fathers would disown their, normal, their, their biological children, their normally born children, and they would, they would rather take an adopted child. And they would say, we prefer this one. And that, that child would be brought into the family and raised as if it were biological, and they give it all the status that would normally be given to the biological child. Paul's in, Paul is very intentional about using this adoption process as our picture of how we are brought into the family of Christ. Here's what I mean. In Roman adoption, it goes from one family to another. You have a new father. It's at the father's initiation. You have an, an invitation you share in a higher status. You receive a new identity. When you're adopted in Roman adoption, you have a new name. You receive comfort and assurance. You leave your old family, your old debts. Everything about you is canceled and restarted, and you cannot be disowned. In Christ, here it is. We are transferred from one family into the kingdom. We share in this family. It's at Father's invitation. We have a new status. We have a new identity. We have a new name, which we're called saints and holy. We have comfort and assurance. Our old family is gone. Our debts are canceled. And we can still never be disowned. Do you see why Paul is using this language here? Because people were easily discarded. And Paul is saying, look, that doesn't happen in Christ. You've been adopted. You're not going anywhere. You are firm in here. You are accepted. For this culture, Paul was using the right metaphor. This, is, this meant a lot to those people because they didn't belong anywhere. And Paul says, you might not belong here, but here's the one person you belong to, and it's all that matters. You want to know what it looks like to be accepted? Here's what it looks like. Jesus takes you in, adopts you, gives you everything that's his, and says, you're mine, and I'm not getting rid of you. This is your acceptance. In a world that, def that was defined by what you did and how accepted you were and assigned you worth by who you were with, Paul says you have unspeakable worth, all because this is what the God of the universe says, and there's nothing you can do to ever get rid of it. So what does this mean? This means that you and I are already accepted. In our world, where we do everything and anything to get that nod, to get the approval, we stay up late nights, we don't sleep, we worry, we have anxiety, all to receive this acceptance from who? People around us. Paul is saying that acceptance that you're looking for, you no longer need to go searching. Why? Because you already have it. 
Paul says this in, 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 in Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, live up to that thing that you've already received. You have the acceptance, everything you have. Now you simply have to live like you're already accepted. I'm going to teach you a big word. You ready? Eschatological realism. Can you say it back to me? You didn't say it. You just moved your lips and said watermelon. I watched you. Eschatological realism. This is the concept that Paul is trying to say. See, when you stay in town on Labor Day weekend, you learn fun words like eschatological realism. Eschatological realism says this. Eschatological means study of the end times. It's the future stuff. So it's things in the future. Eschatological. Future. Realism means real. Okay, so what Paul is saying is the future thing that we look at is already here. You already have the acceptance in which you're striving for. So that might be come in the future, but this is what God says about you. You are accepted. Now simply live like it's true. How would life differ for you if you knew right now that you are 100% loved, 100% accepted, and it didn't matter what anyone around you ever said? It would change things. I got married when I was 30 years old. I started, this is going to get personal here, we started puberty around 12, okay? So there was a long gap between me trying to figure out who I was and my acceptance until I was married. There was 18 years there, and it was rough, okay? If my 13-year-old self saw my wedding video, saw that at that point in life I would be loved and accepted by everything about me by Carrie how much would have that changed my life through junior high and high school and all of those people that didn't work out in my 20s? Not to say they were bad people. I just wasn't for me. How much would that change things? I would have dated differently. I would have made better decisions. I wouldn't have done a lot of the things that I ended up doing. Because why? I knew that on November 21st, I was going to walk down the aisle 10 years ago this November and I was going to be fully loved and fully accepted at that point. This is what Paul is getting at. The love and acceptance that we're all searching for is something that we already have. It's not something that you earn. It's not something that you achieve. It's not something that's Uh, something that you can apply for. It's not something that you go searching for. You already have it. And what Paul is saying is live like you already own it. And when you do, you'll finally get it that there's nothing you can do to be more accepted. There's nothing that you can do to be less accepted. It's already true at you. You are loved. You are accepted. You are brought into this family. And then when you're brought into this family, it's not that you just sit around and go, cool, I'm in the family. Because in this family, if your family is like anything like mine, we had these things called chores. Did you have chores? I had a lot of them. I was the youngest, so I got all my brothers. And so, but the, we have a role to play. 
So you're marked by being loved, you're marked by being accepted, and then you're marked by being sent. Here's what I mean. Paul says this in Ephesians 2.10. He goes into great detail of how you were loved. He goes into great detail to show how you were accepted. Now he says this. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which... God prepared in advance for this to do. Roger, keep that verse up there. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 say, For by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so that no person can boast. Right? That's where we like to stop. Yay, I'm in. I'm saved. Woohoo! And then it's like a semicolon. For. Yes, you're saved. Yes, you're brought in. You are God's handiwork. And now you have a calling. Order matters in this phrase. I learned a lot about how instructions and order matters yesterday. I was putting together a Lego Tyrannosaurus Rex for my son, and I tried to fast-forward the process, and I ended up having to take it all apart three or four times because I went out of order. What, look at Paul's order here that he does this. Look how he frames this. You were cre- you, for we are God's handiwork. He's rephrasing. Who are you? All of your deficiencies... How are you defined? We could talk back. We're friends. Handiwork. It's a masterpiece. It's poema is the Greek word. You are shaped by God himself. Everything about you, including that one mole you have that you don't like, everything about you is shaped by God. You are God's handiwork. You are his masterpiece. He has a picture of you on the wall with the lights that dim to bring out the contrast and everything we do with Thomas Kincaid paintings. He has that all there. That's you. You are God's handiwork. Then he says, this is you. The order matters. He builds, created in who? Christ Jesus. So where are you? In Christ Jesus. Paul says this in Colossians. Your life is taken and swallowed up by Christ. You are hidden with Christ. And then when God sees you, he doesn't see you. He sees, G- he sees you through the lens of Jesus. You are in Christ. This is who you are in Christ. You are God's handiwork. You reside in Christ to do what? Good stuff. You have stuff to do. We have a job to do. We all have a calling. Here's the fun part about the calling. Is it ambiguous? No, read on. Which God prepared in advance for you to do. Oh, God has some ideas on how and the things that you're supposed to be doing with your life. Do you see how this builds on each other? Your identity, your acceptance, and you're called. We have this concept in our church that says that, or not in, not in this church, but in the church in general, that Pastors are the ones who do the Christian-y stuff throughout the week. That we're the ones who do the praying. That we're the ones who do all that. This verse says, no. What are you called? You're a saint. You're accepted. You're loved. And then, you have a job to do. You are called. Not only to live as Jesus' followers... But we have jobs that we go to Monday through Friday. Sometimes Sunday through Sunday. We have jobs where we go and we're around people. And those jobs lead us to our calling. That is your calling to be a person of Christ in that 
place. Your work is your ministry. No matter what you're doing, you can find God in your work. Your work, whether it's at home, whether it's in a classroom, whether it's in a factory, whether it's in a cubicle, whatever it is, God can use you in that place to do good things. I had a conversation with a New York real estate agent. You're talking buku bucks, right? And you'd think that this guy would have uh, no association with God and what he's doing in, in there. He's just in it for the money. And then you start talking to him about, hey, how do you find God in your work? How is God using you in your New York Skyrise apartment real estate business? He goes, I'm, I'm helping people be settled into the city in which they live. And then he quoted Jeremiah 29. And we like to focus on verse 11 there. But before that, it says, bless the city in which you live. He says, I'm helping people find homes. I'm helping people be cared for. I'm helping people find community. Because when he sells them a house, he also points them to a local church if they're interested. This is how he's being used by God in his work. There was another group of, this, of people at this conference we went to, and they were designers and business, entrepreneurs. They adopted a, a coffee shop in Harlem somewhere, and they said, we're, we're going to use our gifts and our jobs to bless you. God gave them the gifts to be entrepreneurs and designers and business people. They came alongside this ice cream store and said, let's Be the presence of God in our jobs for these people to make them successful. Why? Because it blesses the city in which they live. Every occupation that you can think of can point back to what God is doing. Kuiper, a a theologian, says it this way. "There There is not a square inch of the domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry mine. Everything you do, every square inch of what you do, Jesus says, I can use you in that. Why? Because you're already loved. You're already accepted. There's nothing you could do to ever, to ever dis, disown that or disown you. Now let me use you in whatever you are doing, which tells me this, you are all now in full-time ministry in whatever you're doing. Full-time ministry. If you're lawyering, if you're a lawyer, we might, this one might be a little bit foggy. Lawyers, you are in full-time ministry seeking justice. If you are studying, you are in full-time ministry. If you're architecture, you're building, you're in full-time ministry there. If you're a banker, you're in full-time ministry there. If you're teaching, you're probably in more full-time ministry Because your hours are crazy. If you're a mortgage brokering, that's full-time ministry. If you're working at Red Robin, that's full-time ministry. If you're doctoring, you're full-time ministry. If you're designing, you're in full-time ministry. If you're a planner, you're in full-time ministry. Whatever you are doing right now, you are in full-time ministry. Because of this passage, because of our new identity, our occupations, our nine-to-five, becomes how we put Jesus on display. It's not just Sunday. It's 24-7, all the time. We put Jesus on display. You are a minister, and you're equipped to do that. 
The biblical picture of a church isn't just a bunch of pastors doing something. It is a body of Christ, the people, individuals like you and me, unleashed to do amazing things using our giftings and our talents in the workplace. This is why this passage is so significant. Because you have a group of people sitting in a room who felt like their lives didn't matter and what they did didn't matter. They were lost in the rat race and Paul says, no, 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 no. You're loved, you're accepted, and everything you do points back to God. Points back to Christ. We don't define ourselves by our work. You are not a Christian teacher. You are a, or you're not a teacher who, a Christian teacher, you are a Christian who happens to teach. And by being a teacher, you are pointing the people who you teach back to Jesus. You are a Christian who happens to be a lawyer who seeks justice. You are a Christian who is a doctor who uses the gifts and the brain and everything that you have to help mend people to make them whole again. If you're retired, you are a Christian who has time to invest into the next generation of folks. You are called to be, maybe you're a mentor. All of our lives have callings. All of our lives have purpose that are beyond our jobs, beyond our titles, and beyond our paychecks. You are called by God to create beauty wherever you go. So I want to ask you these questions. In your job, in your life, who do you have influence over in which you can point them back to Jesus? In your job, in your life, who has God put in your path In your job, can you find a way that God might be at work within your work? What is the root of what you do and how might God be using that? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that work is good, that jobs are good. We were created in Genesis 1, we were created, and almost immediately you say, Now, tend the garden. Because work was created as a good thing. However, Lord, may us not uh, use work to ultimately define our worth. Because as you say, you love us. In your eyes, we are saints. Deeply loved, accepted fully, given a new name, given a new calling given a new life. And there's nothing that we can do uh, to to be disowned. Father, we thank you that you climb that hill for each one of us. You come up and you scoop us up and you say, you're mine. Perfect. Loved. Accepted. And sent. Lord, may we see ourselves as the sent ones in our daily lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.